Welcome to the table at the Lake Harriet Band Shell. Um, we are part of a consortium of churches that each have a Sunday um, during the summer here at the Band Shell. And we're so happy that you're all with us on this beautiful sunny day. I feel like people wisely pick the shade wherever they can. But gosh, we are just so grateful to be here. Again, my or we are the table. My name is Debbie Manning. I'm one of the pastors at the table. We meet every Sunday night, except for tonight, at 5 p.m. And we rent space from Bethlehem Lutheran on the corner of 41st and Lindale Avenue South. Gosh, if you're not part of our community, we'd love you to have you try us out. Um, we, we are a community of people practicing the ways of Jesus by creating space for all to be loved and all to belong. Um, couple quick things for those of you that whether you're part of our community or not, you are welcome. We are having a huge women at the table gathering on Wednesday, July 26th. We'll be at the Giovanelli's home. If you want more information, go to our table website and join us. It's always um, such an amazing time of connecting and hearing stories. Um, likewise, we have a men at the table event on August 1st, and you can find that all out on the website as, all, as well. So thank you for being here. Um, enjoy the rest of the morning, and I'm going to hand it over to Matt Moberg. Hey, good morning, everybody. How are we doing? Yeah, to echo Debbie's thoughts, I mean, absolutely. Good job for you guys finding that shade. Do I feel lonely on this side? I don't know how to properly like, position myself. That's going to be an issue. But otherwise, kudos to you. My name is Matt Moberg. I'm one of the leaders here at the table. We are thrilled that you are, um, you know, among that select few who remain faithful to Christ and you don't escape to cabins on July 4th weekend. You are here. We see you. We love you. Thanks for showing up this morning. Uh, one thing we always say at the beginning of this sermonic space, before we get into any kind of material whatsoever, because let's just be honest, sometimes you go to a sermon or a message or whatever you want to call it, and the nutrients for your own story, they're not actually there. But we want to make sure you hear this. If you hear nothing else, who you are is more important than what you do. Even if what you do gets more attention than who you are, we are redundant about that refrain. It is it is so important to us. It's, it's, it's tied to our essence, our, our understanding as a community. We want people who walk into our space, walk into relationships in our community to understand that who they are as people, beyond they go out and before they go out and create identities as performers or producers or anything of that sort, who you are as a person is so much more important than what you do. Even if all the noise orients around what you do. Hey, I got a story for you. You know, as one of the leaders here and one of the frequent speakers on this pulpit, sometimes you have to work really hard for a sermon illustration. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes you have to, like, read through three books of Chronicles of Narnia, waiting for your kid to say something profound. Hypothetically, that's an example. Other times, they fall right into your lap. Can I tell you about Friday night? Friday night, my dad, Dave Moberg, and I, we were out at Como golf course, which is a lot for the general in and of itself to take on. I mean, thoughts and prayers for the local homeowners that were surrounding that course. We can be rather erratic at times. Now, my dad and I, that makes two of us, we were being paired up with two others that we did not know. Any golfers that are in our midst right now, Nick, I see you. 
Yeah, I, I guess I wasn't asking for a wave, but I appreciate it all the same. <laughs> yes, sir. If you were a golfer and you show up as a twosome and you get paired up with another twosome that you do not know, it is a wild card experience. You don't know what you're getting into for four hours. And so it could be at the end of the 18, you're exchanging numbers, want to connect over coffee at a further point, or you might be filing lawsuits. You really don't have a good grasp out of the gates on what's about to unfold. I will be honest with you though, by hold number two, I thought we were in for something. These two guys, roughly my age, they were chatterboxes and they were making bold and reckless claims throughout the round. Often like saying, hey Matt, do you want me to help you with your putter at all? Like, do you want me to help you with your driver at all? And I had to eventually go like, no, I, I don't, I'm okay, thank you sir. By 17, there was a problem. There was already a building tension. We tried to be peaceful and palatable. But by the time we got to hold number 17, this is a true story. Sometimes preachers can get hyperbolic. I'm telling you right now, this is verbatim true story. Hole 17, less than 48 hours ago, we step up to the tee box. I felt like it was a peaceful time. On some level, we're enjoying each other. We step up to that tee box, and there is a small child about 100 yards into the fairway who is trying to ride across the course on his bike with his little teenage mutant Ninja Turtle helmet on. Out of nowhere, the big mouth bro that I was paired up with just starts cursing the kid out at the top of his lungs, screaming at him. And not like a casual, like, will you please move in a heightened way or more intense? He was raining it down. While he's raining it down, he's simultaneously looking at the rest in his foursome. He's going like, this is funny, isn't it? I'm being funny, aren't I? Eventually, I had to say, like, you need to chill right now. He didn't chill. He only got louder once I said, you need to chill right now. And so I got into my car. I drove 100 yards up into the fairway, and I met with this kid. At this point, this kid is frozen still on his bike, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle helmet on his head, and there are tears welling up in his eyes. I say, hey, buddy, like, you're good, man. Don't, don't pay any attention to that. You are totally fine. Are you okay? Are you lost? Is there a way that I can help you in this moment right now? He didn't have, honestly, didn't have the composure to fully say, like, actually, you know, here's my circumstances. I was there trying to go that. He goes, should I get off the course? And I said, well, I mean, there's a path over there that might be more ideal for your own safety. And he didn't have any strength, composure, capacity to say anything else. He just kind of started to weep, and then he slowly turned around and drove away. I was livid. I was so upset. Watching a kid that was the same age as my kids have his tears fill his eyes, his voice trembling like that as he's just on his bike enjoying a Friday evening from the park onto the park, trying to figure out what his next move is going to make. I get into my cart. I drive back to the tee box. I get out of my cart. I go back to my golf bag. I grab that driver, and I tell you, I just start wailing on the guy. I say, you shall love your neighbor. I'm just kidding. It was the putter. But I actually had this moment where he was still laughing, and he goes like, wait, are you actually mad about that, bro? Like, what is that kid even doing? And I said, he's a 12-year-old child. If you are going to get your kicks, out of traumatizing a 12-year-old boy, you have some serious reflection that you need to do. Tell me how you stand behind something like that. And he goes, well, how do you know he's actually 12? Does it matter if he's actually 12? Then he went to, hey, you know, honestly, though, like, obviously, I maybe went about it the wrong way, but 
the, my heart of hearts here is I was trying to keep the kids safe. I said, no, you were not. Not at all what you were doing there. And then he said, well, I mean, first of all, don't you remember when you were a kid and older people used to yell at you like that? And that's where I went, okay, that's what this is right here. I understand now a little bit more why you just did what you went out and did. At some point, from somebody, at somewhere in your story, you received some kind of pain. And what you received, you replicated upon another person. Coping mechanism, defensive or otherwise, I don't have the language to actually articulate its fullest meaning, but what I do know is that Richard Rohr is right when he says that pain that isn't transformed ends up being transmitted. And on that 17th hole at Como Golf Course, there was pain that was being transmitted. Somebody did this to him, he turned around and did it to somebody else. And all of a sudden, in that space, my anger, my, my sense of rage and vengeance, which I've felt like was vengeance or justified, it slowly kind of calmed down into a different kind of sadness. Now I got home that night, and obviously first and foremost, I'm thinking about how I beat my dad by 17 strokes. That's not important for the story, but if you're a note taker, please write that down. At home that night though, I started thinking a little bit further about that moment that we had. And I thought about this 12 year old kid Maybe 12. Please don't be concerned about his age, sir. <laughs> How is he going to carry that story in his spirit over the next few years, over the next couple decades? Then I started thinking about that guy, big mouth bro, yelling all kinds of, of obscenities at a small child on a bike. And then I started thinking, how did you carry your stories in your spirit over the past few decades. Inevitably, that brought me to me. How have I carried my stories and my spirit over the past few decades? I'm here this morning to ask you how you've carried yours. How have you thought about the things that you have gone through, the experiences that you've had? I think that we are pretty good at knowing what to do with the highlight reels that we can offer up to the world, but what about the hits, the burdens, the bruises? The 10,000 different forms of limps that live inside of us right next to the dreams that someday we might still sprint. How do you carry the stories inside of your spirit when you turn around and you consider your life? Because if you look down the pew next to you, there's a lot of different people, but they're made up of persons. And yes, each and every one of them is individuals, but they are containing within themselves multitudes. If you were to really go into the depths of the person you're next to right now, and you were gonna ask him, do you remember the first time when you got scared? Do you remember the first time when you realized it wasn't cool to show up at school with sweatpants on? Do you remember the first time that you started to ask questions about, do I belong? Could I be loved? Is there a space for me? If you went into all these people and you went your eyes just on one particular person and said, tell me more about you, you would find out real quick that there's an individual before you that is containing multitudes inside of them. How do you hold the stories that over all these years you've carried in your spirit? 
How do you hold that moment when you were 10 and you went through that traumatizing fire? And yes, you might no longer smell like smoke, but there might be some internal third degree burns. How are you holding that now? How is it impacting how you are holding others? Pain that isn't transformed ends up being transmitted. Are you careful and reverent of the story you are in? Or is it just stiff upper lip, onto the next thing, and go on our way? The towel. Went through that, dealt with that. I don't want to think about that no more. I'm turning 38 in two weeks. I expected a round of applause. Honestly, though, like, you're, no, 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 don't do it. It's fake now. The absence of applause is more reflective of how I feel about it. I feel like this is different than 37. I, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, when I get to July, I get a little more reflective, a little more nostalgic, a little more, like, turn around and go, going on with my life, and am I at a place where I want to be? Have I handled the things that I've encountered and experienced and embodied along the way in a way that is congruent with the convictions that I hold? I don't know. Sometimes yes. Oftentimes no. It's a little bit of a mixed bag for me. I've done so in the turning around, in this space of reflection that July often ushers me into. I have been so encouraged by the voice of Paul in the New Testament. For those of you who do not know Paul, Paul is probably the loudest voice in the New Testament. He wrote most of the material that's contained inside of it. And in particular, there's a letter that he wrote to a city called Ephesus, the letter that we know as Ephesians. And in this letter, he starts it. He's addressing these people who are trying to find their bearings, people with all kinds of stories inside of them that have messed with the spirits that are coming out of them. In this letter where he's trying to lay out some kind of idea about who God is and in light of that who they are, Paul writes this. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. Think about that just for one brief moment. How audacious of a setup to this letter is it actually that we got right here? Paul is saying that the source, the essence, the truth beneath all truths, the thing that religions have searched for since the very start, not only is that source present in our stories, but also that source has a plan for our stories. Not only does that source have a plan for your story, that plan turns out to be good. God has a good plan, not any kind of plan. It's a good plan, universally declared to be good, nutritious, Edifying for the body, the soul. God has a good plan that's being put into play. Now, you might ask Paul, if you were face-to-face with him, you'd say, well, tell me more about this plan of God's. And he does. Right after that, he goes, this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ. Everything that's in heaven, everything that's on earth. Furthermore, because you and I, Because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God. For he chose us in advance. And he makes everything work out according to his plan. I know it's like, um, you know, if if you've been a Christian for a long time now and you have this tradition of showing up up on uh, Sundays, you take in the message, you find something maybe that is highlightable or whatnot, and then you move on with your day. Can I pause you real quick in that whole kind of process and just say, did you hear what Paul put down? 
all of the things that you've gone through, the good things, the bad things, the moments of tragedy, the moments of triumph, the places where love lifted you all the way up, the places where loss kept you all the way down, all of those things, not all of it is good, but there is a God who is good. And because that God is good, it wasn't all wonderful, but none of it is going to waste. How often do you pause and take account of what God is doing with your story? Not just present tense, past tense, into the future tense as well. The word that's, that's used here in the Greek for work out is energeho, and the idea is that there's this active, present force that is meddling in our things in our past to bring about good fruits in our present. There is something that is taking the missteps and the mistakes, the remorses and regrets, and saying, it's insufficient for that just to be raw material, dead and left behind. We ought to repurpose it, reshape it. We ought to energeo it into a different kind of future. You want to know what God's good plan is for your life? Look at your past and see how God is working in your life. Take some space, especially on a holiday weekend like this, to look in the mirror, to close your eyes, to find some silence, to find some solitude. And think about your story, what you have been through. Parents out there, it's very easy to clump ourselves in with like our kids and the family and the responsibilities and the duties. I'm not talking about y'all, I'm talking about you. Find some space for you to actually stand outside of your own story and realize that all of that material, that dad who left you when you were young, that friend who lied to you, that promise that was broken, the gift that never was given, that business venture that you set out on and it collapsed right away at your feet, none of that goes to waste. How is God energeoing it with you? I think about this when I come to Lake Harriet because a couple of years back I was in the Rose Garden, Lindale Park over there, this beautiful space for reflection like this. And I got there early in the morning. I tried to find some like doing this work right here. And I took a stroll through there and I made my way up the hill to the fountain. And I took a bench there. There wasn't maybe one or two other people there. The benches were all empty. I think we got six around that fountain. But there was an old man in a plaid shirt who showed up that morning. And he had no respect for the social codes of, like, if you're by yourself and I'm by myself, go ahead and grab another bench. He came straight to my bench. <laughs> and he goes, do you mind if I pop a squat next to you? And um, I did mind, to be clear. But I told him, no, that's fine. I've been, actually, I've been waiting for you, man. I'm glad you're here. He didn't say anything after that. I sat next to him at that bench. It was about 6.30 in the morning. We both had coffees in our hands. And he said, do you know about this fountain? And I said, not much. I mean, I'm enjoying the peace and quiet. He goes, do you know who made this fountain? And I said, you know, I, I don't. I mean, the name is slipping my mind, at least right now. Uh, I'm assuming he was like some local artist that had some dream for what could be, you know, adorning the shores of Lake Harriet, and they put forth this fountain. And he goes, that's not true at all. 
And I said, that's not how you speak to strangers. You could have been a little more kinder about that. But he said, the true story about that fountain is that that fountain was created by an unknown artist. In Monta, forgetting the village's name, outside of Florence in Italy in 1500s. It was actually created for the purpose of gift for Pope Sixtus V. Over the years that village was destroyed, the gift never did get given. There was a Minneapolis man who traveled overseas and saw that, and he said, can I take it back home to Minneapolis where I'm from? And they said, yes. They disassembled it. They put it back together. They placed it right there. Then he took me from that bench, and he brought me up to the next fountain. There are two different fountains over there. And he said, do you know where this fountain's from? I'm in now. I'm like, obviously, you know I don't know where that fountain's from. He goes, during the Depression, early 1900s of Minneapolis, while the city was still taking shape, there was this part of the town called Gateway Park. Men would get out in the morning looking for work, and when they wouldn't find it, they would drink themselves silly and sit on this fountain in Gateway Park. Eventually, Gateway Park was demolished and destroyed, and this is the last piece from that storied history of ours. We exchange pleasantries a little bit further. But I can tell you right now, that man wrecked, absolutely ruined my ability to walk through that space and not be reverent of those fountains. And here's the key point. Because at the end of that conversation, he's looking, he's going like, obviously not the artist's intention. It's a little bit rusty. There's been some decay. This is in need of a touch-up. But if you're going to restore it to what it should be, You ought to revere it first. If you want to make it into something that it should be, you ought to pause and see what it was. Take in the stories. Do you revere your own stories enough to pursue? Do you have the courage to go into the places you've been sidestepping for a little while? Now, I can tell you the best gift of AA is the ever-present reminder that everywhere you go, there you are. One all you want, eventually it's going to catch up to you. Paul tells us that God has a good plan. Paul, how does that good plan work? Energeo, the word from which we get energy, is going into all of your things. And so to the addict, to the agnostic, to the angry, to the abandoned, to those who feel like life isn't what they thought it was supposed to be, to those who have taken on more hits than highlights, to those who are feeling burdened, to those who are feeling scared, to those who are feeling sad, to those who are dreading this sense that they're carrying within, that they are actually at the end and there's not much more. Can I tell you right now that God has a good plan for you still? That in the midst of plans that fell apart, in the midst of the wake of the car crashes that never did go forward. God still has a good plan. You are still the beloved. You do still belong. And the best days are still ahead of you. Jesus, God, we are grateful for this space at Lake Harriet, God, my personal favorite space, God, in the Twin Cities area. God, that we can start our Sunday mornings together, that we can 
open up some scripture together that we can actually be with one another as a people and remember that we are also persons and that our story together is stories that we hold within. God, help us have the courage, the bravery to go to those places that we typically tend to sidestep. Give us the integrity to be honest. Give us the conviction to want to get up tomorrow with the It's really are ahead of us. Christ, you are good. Christ, we are so grateful. In Jesus' name, all God's children, we pray together. Amen. I was in. I'm going to use yours. I'm not using yours. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I was in uh, the woods of Bloomington. You familiar with Bloomington? Of course you are. What kind of question was that? Just trying to pass the moment. Last night at 2 a.m., um, I joined some of my brothers and sisters from our local AA chapter, and we were doing a late night ride to honor our friend Davis who lost his life to addiction. And the whole 11 miles that we did that ride, I was thinking we do a really good job in the aftermath of tragedy when lives have been lost of honoring the life that was lived. Can you imagine if we honored those lives when we are alive? One another, ourselves. Can you imagine if we looked at one another, if we looked inside that mirror and we said, I do wonder what God is doing with that story back there, with that moment behind me. I do wonder what God is working for good according to God's good plan in the midst of the uncertainty of life. When we close out our services at the table, we do so with the same benediction every week. And so if you are willing, not forced, but if you're willing, would you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and receive these words from the heart of God, no matter who you are or what you have done, who you love or what you have lost, where you've gone or the places that you've stayed, please know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table because you, as is right now, you are a beloved child of God. And beloved, you belong. We have shirts that speak to that point back there with Sarah. We've had many people asking if you want to make a pit stop. That's the space to do so. Otherwise, go get some food. Enjoy one another. It's a beautiful day. Happy 4th. <laughs>